the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888 And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, AndrewandTodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Greetings to my 400 affiliates. Special moment here. Dr. Francis Collins joins me. He is the director of the National Institute for Health. Good morning, doctor. How are you? I'm just fine, Hugh. How are you doing this morning? I am great. It is such an honor to talk to you. I'm really glad you joined me. I'm one of your big admirers. Although uh, I am a Presbyterian Roman Catholic, I've never attended your Presbyterian church inside the Beltway, but I will someday. My wife drags me to another one every other week or so, but I'm a Roman Catholic. But I admire your writings and your faith, and thank you for joining me this morning. Well, that's very kind of you. Yeah, you're welcome anytime to come and check out the other Presbyterian churches in the neighborhood. They're all pretty amazing places uh, populated by incredibly dedicated people. And very diverse crowds. The, the great thing about Beltway Presbyterians and Catholics is they don't talk politics on the church patio, and I appreciate that a lot. Dr. Collins, I want to begin with the most obvious question. Given your credibility and you're in your second decade at the head of NIH, and people in my world, the uh, evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian world, we love people like you who speak about their faith and then do good work. Why was the Johnson & Johnson vaccine paused, and was it a mistake? Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about this. I'm right in the middle of those kinds of discussions, although it is the call of the FDA, and I don't want to undercut their authority. I think they did the right thing, Hugh. I mean, there was this growing concern about a very rare kind of clotting disorder that affected a few people, and they needed to be sure we had a complete handle on exactly how frequent was this and how severe was it. And so to pause for 10 days and get all of that data together and then bring the experts to look at benefits and risks, I think was exactly the right thing to do. I know it created an opportunity for more people to be skeptical about the vaccines, but you could look at it the other way, that this means our system works, that even something that happens only one in a million people is enough for us to detect it, to study it carefully, and then to be able to say, this is still a vaccine that is good for people. Now, Dr. Collins, your expertise are so many more and deeper than mine, but the one thing I know is communication and amplification of messaging. I've been doing this for 30 years, and there are six, uh, six million people listening right now on 400 affiliates. I know how to message. I thought the messaging around that decision may have been the worst governmental messaging I have seen because it led to a precipitous drop in vaccination rate, and I believe especially among uh, low information consumers of data about the uh, vaccines to a great deal of hesitancy and as a result to the spread and perhaps a much higher death toll. Was it worth it in retrospect? 
I think it was, because I think it's a documentation of how rigorous we intend to be about safety issues. I mean, think about it if we'd gone the other way, Hugh, and basically said, oh, yeah, maybe there's a problem here, but we're not going to stop. Would that not have added even more anxiety to those who are already skeptical about vaccines? I don't know. We have to have a parallel universe and do the experiment. I think, though, it is fair to say, if you ask today people who are still hesitant about vaccines, how big a role did the J&J &J pause play in that? It wasn't that big a deal. They were hesitant before. They're hesitant now for lots of other reasons. I don't think this was a major factor in where we are. Have you um, been accessed uh, to the conversations in the White House? And I'm trying to help out the Biden White House on messaging vaccines, because I believe We've got to get vaccinated. It's 100 percent. I've had my two Pfizer shots, stood in line, all that deal. My son had the Johnson & Johnson, so I, I have no doubt about its efficacy. And my brother is a 30-plus-year toxicologist who's retired now. We've talked about all the science. There's nothing wrong with these vaccines. Everyone should get them. But one of the concerns that I heard in those conversations was that Black Americans especially had a concern that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine wasn't as good as the other vaccines because it was one shot, not two. Have you heard mm. that concern? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I could give you a list of concerns that would be many pages long, and that is certainly one of them. I'm with you. I think the J&J &J vaccine is a fantastic opportunity. And my two grandkids, uh, boy 19 and girl 21, both chose it because they liked the idea it was just one dose. You don't have to come back later. You're one and done. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. Certainly, the African-American community has other concerns about the vaccines in general and the sort of way in which uh, in the past they aren't, haven't always been well treated uh, by medical research. Tuskegee comes up. And of course, our whole healthcare system has clearly not always treated them very well. So why should they be confident that this time we're offering something that's good for them? So there's all that reasons. You know what? I think we we need to listen really carefully to each person's concern. They're not all generic. They're not all the same. There are good answers to each of their questions, but we have to be sure to provide them. I think if people go to this website, uh, for the COVID-19 Community Core, which has hundreds of organizations representing underserved groups, uh, things like the National Urban League. There's a lot of answers there. Just go to Google and type in, we can do this, and you'll see what's up there, which I think will be a help to a lot of people. The other thing is, Hugh, I think we need to spend more time and reminding people about the benefits of getting vaccinated. I know you're doing that. Gosh, I was able to have dinner last night with another couple, my wife and I. We sat around the same table. We took off our masks. We broke bread together. We prayed together. We had a, an experience of hugging each other on the way out the door. This is like being liberated. And I think people who are holding back probably are missing out. And yeah, I went clear back to uh, there be other advantages. People are going to be given Safeway discounts in the grocery store if you have vaccination status. There will be a lot of public events where I think private institutions running concerts are going to expect uh, proof of vaccination. Let's just do this and let's get this pandemic behind us. And that takes all of us, not just some of us. 100% agree. I like Maryland's decision, Governor Hogan's decision, to pay state employees a $100 bonus. Incentives matter. A shot and a beer programs are funny, and they work. I'm all for it, and I want my Browns and their Super Bowl run to have full stadiums during that. So couldn't agree with you more. But let's talk about credibility, doctor. Who made the decision on the pause? Because you're never going to persuade me on this, given my sets of skills on 
on uh, messaging and your set of skills on science, we're not going to agree. But who made the decision? Transparency matters a lot. Did the Biden White House make it? Did the CDC make it? Did the FDA make it? On which decision are you talking about? To pause the J&J vaccine. Uh, to pause. Uh, that was the FDA's decision, and that's their appropriate responsibility. They have the experience, the authority. Uh, they looked at this long and hard. They did some consulting with other folks, but you don't really want uh, the politics to get into that space. So I think the FDA appropriately took the lead. I think Janet Woodcock, who's the uh, acting commissioner, and Peter Marks, who oversees the vaccine effort, are a superb scientists uh, who've been through a lot <laughs> of very challenging issues before, and they were the right people with the help of their staff to make the decision, and I totally support them. Now, Dr. Fauci has been a guest a couple of times on the show. I'm a huge admirer of his, and I defend him against his conservative critics because I happen to believe everybody of both parties and of all points of view have actually tried to do their best in this. Some mistakes have been made, but everyone has tried to do their best. And no governor, R or D, no state, blue or red, is trying to get people killed. Mistakes are made, and, and bureaucrats make mistakes, but we got to be very forgiving because it's a very difficult disease. Am I right about that? Do you share my point of view? You are so right about that. And it breaks my heart when we have people dying, you know, how many 570,000 people in this country alone, and somehow we're fighting about things like who made which decision with which information as if it was a political football. That just is so tragic for our country. If we could please take a public health stance about this that looks at the evidence and sets politics aside, we'd be further along. I'm afraid we haven't done very well on that. One of the reasons, doctor, is because of a lack of credibility and transparency and communication consistency from the front of the room. And this happened under the Trump administration. You know my good friend, Robert C. O'Brien. I've talked to him a great deal at length about the process inside the White House. You know Pottinger. You know the president who I've talked to about this. I, we, it was not the finest hour of Republicans or Democrats. But one of the things I talked about with Dr. Fauci last year, and he kind of punted on it, he didn't want to talk about it, it's now in this book. And I don't know if you know Niall Ferguson, one of the world's great historians, has a new book out, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. And I'm reading it this week. I'll talk to him next week. On page 311, he writes this. The bigger failure was the CDC centralization and general hampering of testing. It not only declined to use the WHO testing kits, but also impeded other institutions in the United States from doing their own tests and then distributed a test that did not work. Do you agree with that critique? Well, it was a very, very rough start to testing, that's sure. I think everybody will agree. That was an unfortunate chapter as we were trying to get geared up to deal uh, with COVID-19. That got ultimately fixed, but we lost a couple of months there where we would have had a much better opportunity to see where the disease was before it became so widespread. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say uh, this was a there was an unfortunate chapter in our long and painful 16 months of COVID-19. Notice things have gotten a heck of a lot better in that space now. And I will take a little credit here that NIH jumped in uh, with some additional funds from the Congress to develop new technologies. Heck, we're doing home testing now, where people can find out when they get up in the morning whether they want to go to work or not, whether they might have this virus. That kind of technology didn't exist, and now it does because of a big push to try to make up for what had been a rough start. Now, we're coming up to a dangerous intersection, doctor, and I don't try and ambush anyone, but it's important that your answer on this be right. Um, why did the testing 
breakdown occur? And the reason I say this is critical is it goes to credibility of the institutions involved, that they be open and transparent. As, for example, any church in which you and I are a member, and you've probably been a uh, an elder like I have, whenever you make a mistake, you've just got to lay it out there. Hang a lantern on your problem is what Chris Matthews happened. CDC made a mistake. Why did it happen? How did it happen? And how much did it cost us at the beginning? You know, others have tried to dig into that. Maybe Niall Ferguson's book goes into why this uh, got so off the track and it wasn't fixed uh, for weeks at a time. I don't have any inside information about that. I think CDC was feeling like this is our job. We we are supposed to be good at this. We 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 okay. We've had a glitch, but we can fix it quickly. And it just kind of spiraled uh, into a place where so much time was lost. I don't have any personal uh, inside information to tell you exactly what went wrong, but certainly we all have to look at this and say that was an unfortunate chapter. All right. Now I want to go back to the present, because to me, the greatest concern, and I try and get smart, and I talk to my toxicologist brother, and I read everything that I can, and I talk to you and Dr. Fauci. My greatest concern as a communicator layman who has grandchildren is the risk of a vaccine-evading variant emerging, and not merely evading, but morbidly so, one that can kill people. What is that risk? Is it 1% in your view or 100% in your view? I wish my crystal ball had percentage labels on it, but it doesn't. I think right now, Hugh, we are in pretty good shape. There was a spate of papers published yesterday in the real world, a big study from Israel, a big study from Qatar, looking to see how did the Pfizer messenger RNA vaccine perform in that setting. And it was very reassuring. Israel is overwhelmed with this B117 variant, which is now about 60% of the isolates in the US. This is the one that swept across the UK and then pretty much went to the rest of the world. And in fact, in that real world, 95% efficacy uh, of the Pfizer vaccine against that variant. That should be very reassuring. Qatar has both that one and the South African variant, the B1351. And in terms of severe disease, hospitalization and death, over 90% protection against that one, which was the one we were even more worried about. So at the moment, I think we're pretty good, but the question is what's lurking out there? The one I'm watching now, and I wish we had more data, and maybe we will another week, is the B1617, which is in India, causing incredible death and destruction. And we don't yet know exactly how well our vaccines will work against that. The evidence we have is encouraging, but I want to see more. Uh, now, Doctor, you will recall, I hope, Don Rumsfeld's famous, there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. I'm very worried about the unknown unknowns, because I read The Great Influenza when George W. Bush used to carry it underneath his arm, and it scares the hell out of me. People don't know how bad it can get. Are you still losing sleep over second-order consequences about which very few people are focused right now? Oh, yeah. My sleep disorder has not gotten any better because I am certainly concerned, as you've just raised, about what other variants might be lurking out there that we haven't seen yet that are really different than the original uh, Wuhan virus and where our vaccines no longer provide the necessary protection. The best way to keep that from happening is to have everybody get vaccinated as quickly as possible and drive this virus out of here. But the more people that are getting uh, immediately infected, the more chances the virus has to mutate some more and ultimately something 
you know, subjected to evolutionary selection, which is happening in real time for this virus, may emerge that we are not prepared for. Now, frankly, we are thinking about that every day. You may have seen uh, also yesterday, Moderna published their first data on their revised vaccine, which has a different range of coverage of that South African variant. It looks really good, but we don't want to have to do that. We don't want to have to come up with a booster for people because we have a new virus that the current vaccines don't quite work against. We want to get I'll, this out of here. Uh, now, I want you to speak to the conspiracy uh, or, or actually, I don't want to call it conspiracy. That's derogatory. To the concern that some people have that I've heard voiced to me personally, I think it's it's not uh, in any way grounded in fact, but I've heard it so often, I want you to speak to it, that the mRNA vaccine somehow changes DNA and therefore has long-term consequences about which the medical establishment and big pharma isn't talking to us. And I tell them, no, that would be a liability risk. As a lawyer, that would be crazy for anyone to do and not reveal. But would you talk to that particular set of off-the-chart concerns, which is nevertheless out there? I would be glad to. And this is something I know a little bit about. I had the privilege of running the Human Genome Project. My whole career has been focused on DNA and trying to understand it. So DNA gets transcribed into messenger RNA. It doesn't go back the other way. So, And the messenger RNA that is injected in the muscle is there for a very short period of time, just enough uh, to produce the protein, that spike protein that you need to generate the antibodies that are going to give you immunity. Uh, it doesn't even get into the nucleus where the DNA is. So this is um, somebody's fanciful idea who needs to go back and study molecular biology 101. And basically, it's one more scare tactic that I think is preventing people from taking advantage of what has been frankly, the most amazingly successful vaccine development in decades. This approach with 95% efficacy and a really good safety record has gotten us to where we are. And the more people we can get on board with that, the sooner we'll be done with COVID-19. I have two more questions, Dr. Collins. You've been generous with your time. Does Operation Warp Speed deserve credit? Because the politicization of the pandemic is one of the most unfortunate things on both sides of the aisle. And part of the suspicion among deep conservatives and some Trump supporters is that he was not credited with any uh, contribution to Operation Warp Speed where he ought to have been applauded. What do you think? Well, I agree with you. The politicization of what has been a major public health crisis that we've responded to with the best science you could imagine is truly tragic. Operation Warp Speed made things happen that have never quite happened like this before, pulling together all of the ways of designing and developing the vaccines, running the clinical trials, doing the manufacturing in advance at risk, just in case the vaccines worked, all of that organized in an unprecedented way, spending a lot of taxpayers' money, I might say, but in a very legitimate way. I would give a particular shout out to the former secretary, Alex Azar, who really was the person who contemplated the need for this Operation Warp Speed when some of the rest of us weren't quite sure we needed that. Uh, he had that vision. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Monsef Slaoui, who came in to lead that effort. Uh, for a dollar, and who, with his experience in vaccine development, which was exquisite, was able to steer this in a direction that got us two FDA-approved vaccines in 11 months. So, yeah, there should be a lot of shouting and cheering for that. All right. Now, my last question goes to our status as fellow believers in the resurrection factual accuracy of the gospel accounts of Christ. Because if you, you don't write the introductions that you get in newspapers. I work for The Washington Post, in part, and when they interviewed you last year, 
They said, since the start of the coronavirus in the United States, Collins has been in an unusual position to address people of faith, many of whom are skeptical of scientific research for such things as evolution and human influence climate change. The following interview with Collins talks about he's talking to faith leaders about the coronavirus has been edited for length and clarity. I think that's a sideswipe. I think that's a drive-by. I don't know any people of faith who are generally, I really don't, none of them in my circle are skeptical of climate change or of evolution. I, I honestly think that's a, a, a terrible medieval sort of tactic of torturing the evangelicals. What do you say to reporters who carry around these stereotypes with them? Well, you know, Hugh, I think maybe there is a bit of a stereotype, but there is still some truth to that. Uh, if you sort of ask evangelicals across multiple different denominations, maybe not the Presbyterians, but uh, talk to the Southern Baptists, uh, what's their view about evolution? There's still a strong sense out there that that's an atheist conspiracy uh, to try to undercut the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. I don't see it that way at all. I see you can completely put those things together as part of God's plan. But, you know, go to the website for answers in Genesis and you'll see. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that, America. Don't do that. No, no, don't do that. Well, you just saying, it's, still, it's still alive, Hugh. And if people really want to see how all these things can fit together, go to a different website called BioLogos, B-I-O-L-O-G-O-S, and you'll see some wonderfully thoughtful people coming up with interesting insights as to how science and Christian faith are actually wonderfully complimentary. So yes, and, and the that's the Roman Catholic point of view. And, and Dr. Albert Moeller runs Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I talk all the time about how the church has to be understood correctly to advance both science and faith. But back to this, this meme, whenever believers see that, it actually does great damage to the message that people of faith are in fact, I think overwhelmingly majoritarian. There, you'll find some atheists who are anti-science as well, uh, and and you'll find climate alarmists who are anti-science. Can't we just approach the issue at hand without attributing to people? This is the great error: attributing to people points of view that you don't know that they hold. Not you, but I mean generally the media. Well, no, I totally agree with you there. And this is a sin that we're all creating all too often these days. We do a lot of imputing of attitudes to people that we don't know yet. And that really is not helping uh, with our overall problem of such dissension across communities in this country, which is heartbreaking to see. And certainly people of faith ought to be in there uh, being peacemakers and not adding further to the dissension. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case either when you see how faith and politics have gotten so completely tangled up in ways that have done really not very good things to either. Well, Dr. Collins, thank you for your time. Everyone who's listening is praying for you, at least those of us who are co-religionists or people of faith. And I appreciate your joining me for this extended conversation, your transparency, your honesty, and your hard work. Thank you, doctor. Thanks, you. It's nice to be with you. Call me back anytime. I will. I'll see you on a church patio down the road. <laughs> All right. Very good. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. AndrewandTodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. 
You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.